Good Monday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air. I hope all of you had a good uh, Sunday uh, yesterday. I missed being with you all yesterday, but don't worry. I was able to do a lot of um, homework, that is, for this upcoming uh, podcast session, which we will be um, focusing tonight on Michael Schumacher's The Mighty Fitz, The Sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Many of y'all are wondering, what could we be talking about tonight? Well, I will tell you this. Regardless of the tragedy, no matter how big or small a situation may be that um, presents um, sadness in general, there's always going to be some form of controversy surrounding it. You know, uh, take for example like the Kennedy assassination. That still has a lot of controversy even to this day. There are still those who believe that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and killed President Kennedy. I myself, on the other hand, don't believe that was the case. Of course, that's a whole other topic, and, but it's an example of a situation or an incident of historical significance that still has controversy. Well, let me ask you all this. Um, would there be anyone of controversy, both good and bad, in regards to the Edmund Fitzgerald sinking? The answer is yes. As a matter of fact, there's, uh, there are two people whom we're going to be talking about tonight that presented um, a good side to them and a not-so-good side, which equals controversy or someone being of controversial or controversial um, significance. Who is the first person we'll be discussing? Well, before we get into um, that person's name, I think it's fair to point out that um, both men who we, whom we will be discussing, being Tom Farnquist and um, Frederick Shannon, both had strong, both had a strong passion in the Edmund Fitzgerald. But we will find out here in a little bit what caused both of these men to have a rift, and not just a small rift, but a major rift that caused them to go opposite directions. So let's fasten our seatbelts and let's get ready for tonight's uh, podcast. So, what do we know about Tom Farnquist? Well, up until I read this book, um, that is Michael Schumacher's book on Mighty Fitz, I had no idea about Tom Farnquist, but nonetheless, he is a very uh, interesting individual. Well, for starters, he had a strong interest as well as having excellent knowledge of Great Lakes shipwrecks. He, was an ind- he is an individual whom over time would receive praise from many, but also receive a fair share of criticism. And as I said a moment ago, both men we're going to be talking about, there's a lot of good in them and a lot of not so good. So anyways, whenever someone is surrounded by controversy, let's put it in a nutshell, it's it's a love-hate relationship with the individual, or individuals for that matter. And unfortunately, there's no middle ground. I have a friend of mine, not to get off track here, but just real quick, I have a friend of mine from college who's from Massachusetts. And there's a famous political family 
from Massachusetts that still is very active in uh, politics on the national level, the Kennedys. I asked my friend from college what she thought of what she thought about the Kennedys, and she basically told me this: Kirk, with the Kennedys, it's a love-hate relationship. You either like them or you don't. It's really hard to have a middle of the road with the family. In any ways, that can be the same. The same can be said for any um, well-to-do uh, political family or just uh, people in general of um, significant. Um, uh, ranking or status in um, in society. So as for Mr. Farnquist, he began scuba diving at a very young age, and his scuba diving um, ventures uh, eventually led him to visit and study sunken shipwrecks on Lake Superior's waters. It was in 1978 that Mr. Farnquist co-founded the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. This was done in honoring the memory of sunken ships as well as preserving them. Okay, well, this isn't bad. I think this is all rather very um, well-intentioned um, and very well-honorable. Um, now, let's move on to seven years after 1978, being 1985. Mr. Farnquist helps open the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum in Whitefish Point, Michigan. Of course, remember, Whitefish Point, Michigan is where the Fitzgerald would have um, reached its uh, destination on the night of November 10th, 1975. She was only about 15 miles from the destination until she sadly uh, met her uh, tragic fate. So, the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum is a nonprofit operation facility that welcomes countless number of uh, tourists on a yearly basis. As for Farnquist himself, he had already become the foremost and leading expert on the Edmund Fitzgerald. He would lead three separate expeditions to the wreckage site. And I don't think there's anything wrong with this either. I mean, he's obviously gotten approval from the Canadian government, and he's obviously conducted the uh, wreckage um, explorations in a safe and appropriate manner. As a matter of fact, we will talk about one of these expeditions here shortly. Now, many of you are wondering, well, Mr. Farnquist doesn't appear to be doing anything wrong. He seems like Mr. All-American. You know, he... You know, he just can't do anything wrong. All right, so here's where we're going to find out. Where did critics of Mr. Farnquist display greatest objection towards? The critics um, did not like the fact that Mr. Farnquist had removed objects from various shipwrecks and placed them in the shipwreck museum. Okay, so here could be an example of where the critics feel that Mr. Farnquist is desecrating a grave site, or not just a grave site, but grave sites of, um, of shipwrecks. So the state of Michigan files a suit against Mr. Farnquist, and the state's Department of Natural Resources joins along. So 
all of a sudden, Mr. Farnquist goes from being um, hero to um, public enemy number one. However, is there a resolution? Yes, there is resolution. And, and it's a good thing because just when it seems like all hope is lost, Mr. Farnquist will be able to um, breathe a sigh of relief. A settlement was reached where all artifacts belonged to Michigan and artifacts in question would be borrowed back to the Shipwreck Society for long-term display. So, in other words, um, the uh, artifacts that, say, for example, were um, brought up from the shipwreck sites, they would be borrowed on display for um, long-term display, that is, for the shipwreck society. And once, in, the, in other words, they probably had to come up with an agreement where the, those uh, artifacts in question would stay at the Shipwreck Society um, Center for X amount of time before being returned uh, to the state of Michigan. So that, that's the settlement right there. It's probably not the most perfect of settlements, but it's a settlement that both parties could um, live with. If it weren't for that, I'm not sure what uh, kind of compromise would have been reached in that manner. Well, what's unique about 1992, forward another seven years later? Well, this didn't happen in 1992, but an anchor that belonged to the Fitzgerald was retrieved, and it became a major showcase item on display at the Dawson Great Lakes Museum. Ironically, the anchor itself was found in the Detroit River back in 1974, the year before the Fitzgerald sank. So uh, here's a good bonus question. Pay very careful attention. Was visiting the Edmund Fitzgerald wreckage site the ultimate Great Lakes adventure? The answer is yes. For historians like Tom Farnquist, it represented a one-of-a-kind opportunity to study the Fitzgerald from all aspects. Who would Mr. Farnquist turn to for this opportunity? Now, remember from uh, the other night's uh, podcast that, you know, it's one thing to want to conduct a, a wreckage site or a mission to study a wreckage site, but you would have to get approval from, in this case, the Canadian government, because that's where the Fitzgerald, the Fitzgerald sank on the Canadian side of Lake Superior. But the good news is that Mr. Farnquist does have connections. He has money of his own that he can pocket, but he also can turn to a fellow named Dr. Joseph McKinnis, who is a Canadian physician and yes, you're probably wondering how, why would you turn to a doctor if the doctor doesn't have any um, experience, especially that of underwater um, knowledge involving shipwrecks? Well, it just turns out that uh, Dr. Joseph McKinnis, despite him being a, a, a physician, he was also a well-known underwater explorer. And what do you know? Dr. McKinnis visited the Titanic 
graveyard site in 1991, about six years after Dr. Robert Ballard and his crew found the um, actual site of the wreckage. It turns out that Dr. McKinnis even wrote a book about uh, the Titanic. Dr. McKinnis himself saw the Fitzgerald as a representative to a larger story. Now, how could one such as Dr. McKinnis see a sunken ship as a representative to a larger story? Well, um, to Dr. McKinnis, the Fitzgerald story is one that really needed to focus on a relationship with the Great Lakes. In other words, roughly about... I, I don't know the exact number, but what I do know is that the Great Lakes is... The Great Lakes themselves are home to millions of people, not just on the United States side, but on the Canadian side. And yes, Lake Michigan may be located just on the United States side, but it still is home to uh, a large number of people who inhabit uh, that particular lake. So, for Dr. McKinnis, he truly believes that the Fitzgerald story is one that needs to focus not just on a relationship with the Great Lakes, but given that two nations, being the United States and Canada, share this lake. Now, there are many um, institutions, or should I say, um, institutions that uh, sponsor underwater um, uh, projects that is going to sunken ships. I know that uh, Dr. Robert Ballard, who discovered the Titanic, had spent a number of years at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in uh, Falmouth, Massachusetts. But it turns out that the Oceanographic um, Institute that would support this particular project was the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute out of uh, Fort Pierce, Florida. Which, uh, as a matter of fact, I believe Fort Pierce, Florida is probably somewhere not too far from uh, Pensacola. This institution would provide uh, a 168-foot research ship, being the Edwin Link, along with a three-person mini-sub known as the Clelia, for actual dive to the wreck, to the wreck site. Now, a three-person mini-sub, is that considered revolutionary for its time? Absolutely. This sub... It's not like the submarines we think of, um, like, for example, um, submarines uh, that spend a, a long period of time underwater. This turns out that the Clelia is a 22-foot sub. It is state-of-the-art. It has clear plexiglass, pure, clear plexiglass. If I could speak, that would be wonderful. <laughs> But this clear plexiglass is so great because it offers panoramic views, not just of the Fitzgerald, but for any other expedition uh, for underwater uh, purposes. Now, the sub's sonar side scan will enable topography to take place of Superior's floor to examining um, scattered debris all over uh, the bottom, especially being uh, the taconite pellets. Now, in 1994, 
just a little over 25 years ago, but in 1994, which is, which at that time is close to marking 20 years since the Fitzgerald sank. In 1994, you have a project known as Great Lakes 94, which will take place over a six-week period. It's, it focuses, this project focuses on a variety of um, different avenues or outlets involving the Great Lakes, but one of them will just so happen to be uh, exploring the Edmund Fitzgerald. So on July 3rd, 1994, the first dive expedition by the 22-foot mini-sub Clelia takes place. It is the first exploration by humans since the 1980 Calypso mission sponsored by uh, the late French um, underwater uh, explorer Jacques Cousteau. From July 4th to July 6th, the Clelia makes six dives. The Fitzgerald started, and I should say this, these six dives were um, essential I mean, in total, there were seven dives altogether, but from July 4th to July 6th, there were six uh, dives after the first one. And the Clelia saw numerous things. For starters, she saw the Fitzgerald showing signs of rust. And the Clelia was able to determine that the ship itself was more battered, that is, more uh, broken down and in ill shape at this time than originally assumed. And I should point out that Tom Farnquist, even though um, Dr. McKinnis was one of his big sponsors, Tom Farnquist was able to uh, go along with the McKinnis project and use $10,000 of funds from the Shipwreck Society Museum. Now, here is a, a, person's, a person's name that should be mentioned. The name is Jean Quirin, who is a board member of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. Jean Quirin was the first person to photograph the Fitzgerald. Jean Quirin described seeing the ship as something equivalent to a prehistoric creature that lived millions of years ago. In other words, when Jean Quirin saw the Fitzgerald, Jean Quirin had said that the ship itself had, was once alive on the surface and her existence or basically in her prime. But now, seeing the Fitzgerald at the bottom of Superior, that represented death. In other words, it's one thing when a ship no longer um, is in operation. But, you know, sometimes, you know, a ship is retired because it's, um, it's seen its time and, and it's going to be... Um, either seen as a um, as something that you you know people could tour at a later time or the ship itself might be um, broken down to where um, the ship itself would be used as a um, scrap for um, for various other um, projects 
but to sh- see a ship like the Fitzgerald at the bottom of Lake Superior having met an untimely uh, death or a death that was not asked to be brought upon. Um, seeing a ship at the bottom of, not just of the ocean, but at the bottom of a great lake, it would be like seeing something from prehistoric times. It's standing, it's, it's standing there silent, and the closer you get to it, it's almost as if it could just jump right out at you and attack. And I think it's fair to say that obviously when you see a ship that is um, in ruins, the wreckage also should serve as a reminder of how violent a ship's death truly is, or not just so much truly is, but truly was. Not all ships, when they go down at the bottom of the ocean, they don't go down peacefully. I think we can all agree that the Titanic um, didn't go down peacefully. After all, uh, well, for many years, there were pe- most people believe that she sank as that she sank in one piece. But Dr. Robert Ballard proved us all wrong, and that the ship did in fact split. And the same goes with the Fitzgerald. Of course, the bigger question might still be today: is that at what point did the ship actually split in two? All right, well, here's a, a bonus question that um, I'm going to um, mention. Of course, there's going to be more than one bonus question, but I'm going to throw this one out at, at you all. Was there a different conclusion reached by the Clelia dive crew versus the Calypso crew from 1980? Uh, the answer is yes. Now, I did mention uh, from a previous podcast about what the Calypso crew had uh, determined, but... For those of you who need a reminder, I'll mention it to you again. The Calypso crew was convinced that the ship itself broke into two pieces. Whereas the Clelia crew became convinced that the Fitzgerald herself had taken a nosedive and her bow crashed into the lake's floor at high speed while the stern being the back of the ship, had remained on surface at the moment of impact. So in other words, if the ship had broken in two, it didn't automatically mean that both the bow and the stern would have um, gone to the bottom of Lake Superior at um, at a violent death right away. It's very possible that, okay, uh, a rogue wave or two um, took out the ship, but took out the ship in such full force that that the bow would have uh, gone first, given just how, how much listing had probably taken place and the angle that the waves occurred, that it's very possible with all the carnage that occurred in a matter of minutes that the bow could have just been thrusted at full speed, and then all of a sudden a wave from the opposite end would have taken the stern out to where the stern would have um, would have obviously turned upside down and then then gone straight to the bottom as well. It sounds a little complicated, but even I myself, after reading 
each theory that there has been presented in this book, it's kind of hard to know for sure which theory to go with. What I can say is that the Fitzgerald did sink probably very quick. Given just how much uh, water she was taking on, not just from inside, but the waves coming over and smashing the uh, hatches that secured the clamps and the wave that took out the, the pilot house or a good chunk of it. It's real, you know, and then plus two, I think it's fair to say that given just how many, um, how many times the, the ship itself had exceeded its uh, maximum cargo threshold, it's very possible that the hull itself could have been worn out over time. So the bottom line is, is that a lot of these theories I've read are plausible, that is, they're relevant or doable, but the irony to it all is that everybody's got their own theory behind what sank this ship. The problem is, is that even 45 years later, being today, we've never really been able to determine what truly did cause the ship to sink. As for the Clelia crew, what they did spot was the stem of the bow. What is the stem of the bow? It is the strongest point on a ship, which in the Fitzgerald's case had been bent at a right angle. When I think of right angles, I think of geometry. But given that this stem of the bow had been bent at a right angle, this indicated to the Clelia crew the sheer force that the Fitzgerald had hit, slamming into the bottom. They also, the, the crew themselves uh, spotted the engine telegraph in the pilot house. The, the engine telegraph was set at what is referred to as all ahead full. This means that the Fitzgerald was running at full speed at the time of its sinking. I agree that it's very possible that the Fitzgerald was running at full speed at the time it sank. Even if the Fitzgerald herself had time to slow down, that didn't automatically mean that, that if in fact its bow had been had what he caught had broken apart first that it still could not have sank at a violent pace down to the bottom of Superior. As for Dr. McKinnis, he himself couldn't uh, exactly determine if his expedition knew why the ship went down. But nonetheless, new evidence did shed light on, on what his team felt, how do I say it, his team of people were able to shed light based on new evidence as to what they thought were the hows and whys to behind the Fitzgerald sinking. In other words, they couldn't find the smoking gun, but with the new uh, technology, in part with this three-man uh, sub-team, 
that uh, to me would was a huge step in the right direction because they were able to find um, new pieces of evidence. It just wasn't, they just couldn't find that smoking gun. Now here's a, a, another good bonus question. I probably should have mentioned this from another podcast, but I'm going to mention it now. Given that the Edmund Fitzgerald was around for 17 years, from 1958 to 1975, of course she was uh, built in 1957, but she made her first official trip out on Lake Superior's waters in in September of 1958. So she would have been um, in existence for 17 years. How many trips or voyages did the Fitzgerald herself make on the Great Lakes? I'm going to give you a number. It's between 700 and 800. The answer is 748. Now, I don't know if this number is accurate, but I did the math. I took 748 divided into 17. This is, on average, the Edmund Fitzgerald would have made 44 trips per year on the Great Lakes waters. And like I said, it's not an accurate number, but it's an estimate. When you consider 44 times 17, that is 748. Well, think about this. If the Edmund Fitzgerald made 748 trips in her lifetime over 17 years, and given that she was known as the Titanic of the Great Lakes, she had, and yes, she did meet an unfortunate death, but her legacy was far more significant and had greater relevance than Titanic. Now, I know that's a horrible thing to say, but remember, people, Titanic only had one voyage. Her first voyage was her last voyage. Yes, the Edmund Fitzgerald was considered unsinkable, but the fact of the matter is that even after 748 voyages... It didn't mean that Mother Nature um, still didn't have curveballs of her own to throw in the form of surprises, especially come November, or a.k.a. what's known as the Gales of November. Well, after Dr. McInnes' expedition, did another person lead a crew to the Fitzgerald site, especially in 1994? Oh, the answer is yes. Who is this other man? Frederick J. Shannon. What do we know about him? He was a former police officer and a private investigator who went about investigating the Fitzgerald's wreckage as a crime scene. You know, it's one thing to investigate the wreckage behind a a boat, or should I say a shipwreck, but should you be treating it like a, a crime scene? To me, I would say no, but that's just my opinion. Mr. Shannon became very obsessed with the Fitzgerald after it sank. He compiled large files of books, magazine and newspaper articles, to actual reports and documents, to photographs of the Fitzgerald. He also interviewed mariners and experts to uh, Arthur Anderson's captain, Bernie Cooper, And as I said earlier, Tom Farnquist and Frederick Shannon were both friends at one time regarding their interests and passions for the Fitzgerald's wreckage. 
Well, if they were friends, what's going to cause the two of them to have a fallout? And it's one thing for two people to have a fallout, but why have a fallout over the wreckage of a ship like the Edmund Fitzgerald? Well, it turns out that Frederick Shannon's use in lectures of underwater footage owned by the Shipwreck Society led to this split. And it wasn't just so much the use in lectures of underwater footage, but it also led to bickering amongst each man, and each man would take shots at one another in the media. Here again, a love-hate relationship that has no middle of the road. You know, it's interesting, Tom Farnquist spent $10,000 of his own buddy to um, help out with the uh, McKinnis project. Frederick Shannon spent $75,000 of his own savings in organizing a team to command a ship with a two-person mini-sub. You know, Tom uh, Farnquist and uh, Dr. Shannon, not Dr. Shannon, but uh, Dr. Um, McKinnis did uh, seven dives of their own. It turns out that uh, Frederick Shannon and his crew would also do seven dives, and they did uh, seven dives over a three-day span. Frederick Shannon himself recorded 13 hours of the Fitzgerald's wreckage. He also interviewed a former Fitzgerald crew member who went by the name of Red Bergner. Mr. Bergner's theory was widely accepted regarding the ship's hull. Not just the ship's hull, but the condition of the hull. Mr. Bergner had given a deposition in a court hearing uh, two years after the Fitzgerald sank in 1977. He was very convinced that the Fitzgerald had split apart, given that the hull was already weakened, and it and it wasn't just so much that it was weakened, but it cracked uh, somehow in the storm. And the open door of the pilot house, as well as the open door of the wheelsman's cabin, and, and given that uh, the pilot house door was open, it's very likely that the crew had some warning and an attempt escape was possible. But here's the other thing, too. If the pilot house door is open, if that's what was determined, it's very likely that uh, a rogue wave or rogue waves, given the sheer force that they hit the ship at, speed and all that, the pilot house would have been knocked out from all angles and the door would have opened with water flooding left and right. So even if the door had been opened right before these rogue waves hit, it still would not have been, in my opinion, enough time for everybody to have had the chance to have abandoned ship. Now, is it possible that a couple of men could have had, had life jackets on? It's very possible. As for others, perhaps not, depending on where they were 
aboard the ship, that is. I mean, you have to remember, too, not everybody would have been on top of the pilot house either, or in the pilot house, for that matter. So what were some key um, discoveries into uh, Frederick Shannon's findings? Well, Mr. Shannon had determined that the Fitzgerald's excessive cargo holds, that is, carrying cargo over the maximum threshold of 26,000 tons, had led to unpredictable stress on the ship's hull. Mr. Shannon himself became more convinced that the Fitzgerald wasn't in one piece when hitting the bottom of Lake Superior. Well, I will say this. Mr. Shannon did a lot of good, just like Mr. Farnquist did. Of course, there were those who questioned what Mr. Farnquist did in terms of taking up artifacts from um, shipwreck sites. If you think that's bad, what do you think what do you think Frederick Shannon's expedition to the Fitzgerald was remembered for but not for the right reasons? The answer is the discovery of human remains along with Mr. Shannon's photography and footage of those remains. Prior to 1994, no body, or should I say the bodies of the 29 crew who died, had not been spotted. And it could be very likely that the curve, or that cable-controlled underwater remote vehicle as well as the remotely operated vehicle to the many subs had passed over a body or two without seeing or recording it. I believe it's possible. It was on the fourth dive that Frederick Shannon's team went about conducting, and it was the mini-sub known as the Delta, being a 16-foot mini-sub, had unintentionally discovered a body. The body was uh, clad in coveralls, and the person was wearing a canvas life jacket. So this tells you now that perhaps some of the men were able to put a life jacket on in enough time before the inevitable happened. But as that saying goes from Gordon Lightfoot's song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, Superior never gives up her dead. And remember that Superior's water or water temperature is cold year-round. So the body that was discovered had not decomposed. It was one thing for this mini-sub to have discovered the body. But what did Frederick Shannon want to do? In my opinion, I think this was totally absurd and beyond ridiculous. He wanted to provide a videotape of the remains, hoping that someone would identify them. Now, come on. Is this truly ethical? How much more um, 
pain and suffering would you want to put on a family or any of those 29 families who had lost a loved one back on November 10th of 1975? You know, they've already been grieving for almost 20 years. And for many of these families, I think it's by this point, they're still having a hard time getting over the loss. It's a very sensitive issue, but to, but to post a video and say, hey, can you identify the remains of this loved one? That's beyond absurd. I would think after 20 years that those 29 men deserve to rest peacefully. And this is the big question that still remains today when going to explore um, wreckage sites of ships. What is appro- what's appropriate to uh, video record and what is not? Even though the discovery of this body was unintentional, but for Mr. Shannon to feel that it's okay to want a widow or a son or a daughter who had lost their father, or in this case an uncle, to try to go above and beyond to determine if in fact it was their loved one's remains is to me unethical and um, beyond absurd. Well, this is an obvious answer, but I'm going to uh, just address it. Did the discovery of a body by Frederick Shannon's crew set off a firestorm? The answer is yes. And to make matters worse, Shannon himself considered possibly publishing the photos or the footage of the remains, which to the families was indirect a violation to disturbing a ship's gravesite. If I had been um, a part of, if I had been related to one of those 29 families, I would have agreed. 100% that it was a direct violation of the Fitzgerald's grave site. And while I will say this, was it nice of um, Frederick Shannon and his crew to leave a memorial behind the Fitzgerald's pilot house being a plaque with the names of the 29 crewmen along with Arthur Anderson, Captain Bernie Cooper's name? Yes, all of that was nice. But, unfortunately, Frederick Shannon's reputation was already damaged, in large part because they had photographed a body, and it wasn't so much that they photographed the body. Unintentional, that part, but the fact they were willing to publish photos or footage of this body, that, to me, and to the families of the 29 um, victims, was in a representation of vandalizing not just a grave but a shipwreck's gro- but the grave of a shipwreck. We're in the next podcast I'll be discussing. We're going to uh, continue to talk more about Tom Farnquist and Frederick Shannon. If you were to ask me right now, which of the two men give? Yes, they both have done a lot of good, but. If you were to ask me, Kirk, who do you believe caused the least controversy? I can honestly say that it is a very obvious answer at this point, and that is Tom Farnquist. Tom Farnquist, even though, yes, he may have brought up artifacts from shipwreck sites, 
he wasn't making a profit off of it. He had reached a settlement with the state of Michigan and the Department of Natural Resources. It may not have been the most perfect of settlements, but they were. But both sides came to a compromise, and were able to work out something to where both parties came uh, came away walking, walked away with something good. Frederick Shannon, his expedition would have been good if he had not been stupid enough to have photographed, or not so much photographed the body, but of of a of a dead person, but but went as far as to say, hey, can anybody identify the remains of this person? That to me was a huge mistake. This could be an example of where one would say to someone, hey, don't say everything that's on your mind. Yes, you saw this. And yes, Mr. Shannon did notify the Canadian government, which was the right thing to do, but hey, what what educational value is there to showing a body at the bottom of the water? I think most of the families probably knew that bodies were intact, but why flaunt it? Why say, hey, look, we found a dead body? To me, it's unethical. It's unnecessary. It brings back painful memories because none of those 29 men had the chance to say goodbye to one another. They didn't even have a chance to say goodbye to their families. Think about it. They didn't have cell phones like we know today where they could have called up and said, hey, I just wanted to call and say I love you. I'm not going to make it out of here alive. They didn't have that. They didn't have a chance to issue a distress signal or to uh, call out Mayday. So if you ask me, I would say Tom Farnquist um, caused the least of the troubles. But there will be more to talk about in the next podcast because if we think that, what, that what's been discussed tonight was uh, sensitive or was um, uh, dramatic, there will be more to come. And you're probably wondering if, if, if dramatic is bad enough, is there going to be any positive resolution? There will be, but we have to understand that in order for the positive aspect to come out of it, there has to be um, there has to be what do you call it issues that surface that with time will get resolved. Well, um, thank you for tuning in, and I look forward to to being back on the air again here soon with you all. And I want to say thank you to to all of you out there who have in, uh, enjoyed listening to um, this uh, podcast uh, season on. Um, the Edmund Fitzgerald, because after 45 years, she uh, still must be remembered. She did leave a great legacy, considering that she made 748 trips throughout the Great Lakes. I'm sure there are plenty of other um, Great Lake uh, freighters who have probably exceeded the Fitzgerald's uh, trip, total number of trips, but given that she was the Titanic of the Great Lakes and made 748 trips, that is an accomplishment beyond to itself. Thank you, and uh, good night, and uh, God bless.